You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 30, The Occupation of Boston. Last week, I discussed the growing tension in Boston after London placed the new customs board there. Bostonians resisted the board and all other efforts to enforce customs laws and trade regulations in the colony. The Liberty Riot following the seizure of John Hancock's ship, the Liberty, was one of only many instances that convinced officials in London that they needed stronger enforcement measures to teach the colonists who was in charge. Even before the Liberty Riot, Increasingly frantic letters from Governor Bernard and the Customs Commissioners informed London that they could not enforce the law without some muscle. The naval vessels sent in Boston Harbor could control shipping, but Boston mobs still controlled the land. Despite years of rioting and lawlessness, General Gage, military commander of North America, had not sent soldiers to Boston. He had sent them to New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston but not Boston. Gage's orders prevented him from marching or quartering troops in a colony unless the colonial governor asked for them. Otherwise, he could only do so on direct orders from London. Massachusetts Governor Bernard refused to ask for soldiers. He knew full well that any requests for troops would completely poison his ability to work with the legislature. There was also a good chance that it would result in an angry mob destroying his home. Even if he did put in such a request, he believed that it would require the approval of the governor's council, an elected body in the colony that would never give approval during the ongoing disputes. Following the Liberty Riot, the Customs Board simply could not do its job. Members of the board and several other top customs officials, along with their families, lived in protective custody out at Castle William a military fort on an island at the mouth of Boston Harbor. None of them dared show their faces in Boston. On a rumor, a mob marched out to Roxbury, where they believed John Robinson might be hiding. They did not find him there, but destroyed the gardens around his home anyway. John Williams, the customs inspector, had been out of town until July. When he returned, the Sons of Liberty sent him a demand to appear before the Liberty Tree and resign his position. He refused to do so, but had to face down several threatening mobs. With the colonial legislature suspended, the Boston Town Council, led by men like Hancock, Adams, Otis, and Warren, passed and published a series of resolutions against the military presence. They also sent petitions to the governor, calling on him to resist the customs establishment, protest the use of the Navy in customs enforcement, insist on compliance with the ban on impressment of sailors, and investigate if any officials had requested soldiers because, quote, 
every such person who shall solicit or promote the importation of troops at this time is an enemy to this town and province and a disturber of the peace and good order of both. End quote. Still taking shelter at Castle William, the commissioners sent Benjamin Hollowell, at the time comptroller of the Port of Boston, back to London. Hollowell, you may recall back from episode 25, had been at Malcolm's house the day a mob prevented officials from searching it. He had also worked with Joseph Harrison to seize Hancock's ship Liberty, and as a result had taken a beating during the Liberty riots that I discussed last week. Hollowell departed for London, carrying with him letters from the commissioners outlining the need for an army in Boston. Around the same time, General Gage tried to push Governor Bernard into requesting troops. He sent the governor a letter requesting troops from Halifax. All Bernard had to do was sign it to get the soldiers. At the same time, Gage wrote directly to Lieutenant Colonel Dalrymple in Halifax, requesting that he be prepared to move as soon as he got the order. Dalrymple prepared his troops to move, but never got the order from Bernard. Now, as I said, Bernard had been sending letters for years indicating the chaos and mob rule in Boston. He documented numerous threats and acts of violence against people and property who were only trying to enforce the law. Yet he refused to make an explicit request for troops. He even ended some of his letters to London officials by saying that they should not take his comments about the chaos in Boston as a request to send troops. Clearly he wanted them, but was afraid to ask. Hillsborough, however, back in London, was not afraid to do what needed to be done. He sent direct orders to Gage to deploy regulars to Boston in order to restore order. Hillsborough believed the king's policy had to induce, quote, a due obedience to the law, end quote. Although he wrote the orders in June 1768, even before the Liberty Riot, Gage did not receive the orders until early September. Gage ordered two regiments of British regulars from Halifax to deploy to Boston, a little over 700 soldiers. Dalrymple had already prepared and assembled most of the 14th and 29th regiments and an artillery company with five guns. They would be in Boston in a matter of weeks. Following Hollowell's arrival in London and hearing his reports on the Liberty Riot and other events, Hillsborough ordered another two regiments to ship to Boston, the 64th and the 65th from Ireland, totaling almost 1,000. They would arrive in November. Already aware by September that troops were on the way, a Boston town meeting responded by emphasizing an existing law that required every household to have a musket and ammunition ready in order to defend their rights. To avoid treason charges, they claimed the measure was in case another war should break out with France. But everyone knew the likely targets of those guns were getting ready to board ships in Halifax bound for Boston. Since Governor Bernard had already suspended the Colonial Assembly, the Boston Town Meeting issued a resolution creating an independent committee to work with other towns at a colonial convention. This would essentially be an extra-legal convention beyond the control of the governor or anyone else. Radical leaders like James Otis, Thomas Cushing, Samuel Adams, and John Hancock sat on the new committee. The Convention of Towns met in Boston on September 22nd. Representatives from nearly 100 towns attended. They ignored Governor Bernard's order that they were an illegal assembly and should disperse. 
In fact, Governor Bernard should have been happy that the delegates ignored him. The Boston Radicals did not say outright, but it appears their purpose was to unite the colony in a decision to use arms to repulse the British Army as they landed in Boston. No one wanted to say that explicitly and in public, since doing so was treason, so while Boston Radicals may have been ready to start shooting, the rural delegates were nowhere near ready to fire on British regulars. They had a calming effect on the convention. The delegates argued for a week. Unfortunately, there are few records of the debate, but the end result was that the colony would not meet the British regulars with armed resistance. On September 29th, the delegates learned that British transports were about to enter Boston Harbor. The delegates simply returned home and waited to see what would happen. On October 1st, 1768, the first two regiments of regulars disembarked in Boston Harbor. Colonel Dalrymple was prepared for resistance as the soldiers marched through the streets with their arms at the ready. They met no immediate resistance, though the people of Boston did what they could to make them feel unwelcome. Since Bernard had already suspended the colonial legislature, there was no way to appropriate funds for the troops under the Quartering Act. Of course, even if he had called a session, leaders made clear that there was no way he was getting the money. Colonial leaders argued the soldiers could be quartered at Castle William on an island at the mouth of the harbor, the same island where the customs officials had been hiding. The military considered the fort too far away to be useful, which is exactly why Bostonians wanted them there. So, the soldiers ended up pitching tents on Boston Common. Not a fun way to spend a winter in Boston. Governor Bernard approved an army takeover of the Boston poorhouse. Doing this required that the army evict the poor and sick who were living there. They spent a few days trying to do this while the residents resisted. This led to terrible publicity for the army as they tried to toss widows and orphans out into the cold. Eventually, they gave up and received permission to occupy some empty warehouses. Now, I'm going to discuss soldier-civilian interactions in an episode coming soon as part of the build-up to the Boston Massacre. But throughout 1769, the occupation of Boston remained tense, with lots of street fights and lawsuits. The arrival of the soldiers did have the intended effect, however, of allowing the Customs Board to return from hiding in Castle William. They had remained there since the Liberty Riot about four months earlier. Now they could finally get back to work in Boston, as long as they remain under military protection. John Robinson made the mistake of traveling to Newport, Rhode Island, on customs business. A mob surrounded the tavern where he was staying, and he was able to slip out and flee. But it served as a reminder that the military presence was the only thing keeping the mobs at bay. The naval presence in New England, though not quite as controversial as standing armies, brought their own controversies. Common naval practice allowed for the impressment of local sailors. Impressment was essentially a legal form of kidnapping. Press gangs would capture a merchant sailor and take him by force onto a ship. The ship's officer then informed the civilian that he was now a sailor in the Royal Navy, subject to discipline for any disobedience, and to execution for attempted desertion. Impressment was legal throughout much of the empire, and often important, since death and desertion meant that a ship's crew would become depleted over time. Ships out of colonial ports had a hard time recruiting volunteers 
given the low pay and harsh conditions. As a matter of military necessity, they used impressment to keep their ships properly manned. However, a 60-year-old law prohibited the impressment of sailors in America. Despite the law, or perhaps ignorant of it, the Romney tried to impress new sailors into its crew. On June 9, 1768, the day before the Liberty Riots, a press gang from the Romney boarded a ship in Boston Harbor and impressed a sailor named Thomas Furlong. Furlong convinced them to let him go ashore and collect his pay and property. They, of course, sent him under guard to make sure he would return. However, a mob quickly formed and attacked the three men who accompanied Furlong to his ship. He was able to get free of the press gang and flee the area. After the Liberty Riot, Captain Corner of the Romney agreed that his fleet would not try to impress Massachusetts sailors unless those sailors were already deserters from the British Navy. He made no such promises, however, for foreign sailors who might appear on ships in colonial ports. They remained fair game. On April 22, 1769, the Massachusetts brig Pitt Packet sailed toward Boston with a six-man crew. The British frigate Rose approached the ships in open waters and demanded to come aboard. Two of the crew were Massachusetts men, but the other four were Irish. The Irish hid in the ship's bulkhead. The press gang attempted to extract them. In the ensuing fight, in which the press gang shot and wounded one of the sailors, John Ryan, in the arm, and shot another of the Irish sailors, a man named Michael Corbett, in the face. Both wounds proved relatively minor, and Corbett took a harpoon and struck it into the throat of Lieutenant Panton, who was in charge of the gang. Panton died within minutes. Despite the resistance, the Navy press gang was able to overcome the crew and arrested all six of them for murder. In Boston, authorities quickly released the two Massachusetts sailors as they had played no role in the fighting. Corbett and the three others stood trial before a special 12-member admiralty court made up of various military customs and colonial government officials. John Adams and James Otis agreed to represent the men and demanded a jury trial. The court denied them a jury and ordered them to proceed. After a contentious trial, the court found the men not guilty under the defense of justifiable homicide. The court held that the press gang was operating illegally without the warrant of impressment. It avoided the question of whether any impressment in the colonies was legal. It only said that this particular attempt was illegal. Since there was no warrant in the case, the sailors had every right to defend themselves against the illegal use of force. The decision meant that the incident came to very little. It might have been quite another story if the sailors had been found guilty. A mob might have freed them by force. Similarly, if a jury trial had found the men not guilty, it might have been more reason for London to attack the jury trial system in the colonies. But because the Admiralty Court had decided to find them not guilty, both sides backed off from what could have been a dangerous flashpoint. Following the trial, three of the four Irish sailors, including Corbett, left the colony by getting work on an outbound merchant ship. The fourth, John Ryan, sued the sailor who had shot him in the arm. John Adams represented Ryan again at his trial, and the Navy settled with Ryan and got the case dismissed. As Governor Bernard predicted, the radicals blamed him for the military occupation. As I said, Bernard had not explicitly requested troops, 
However, his letters indicating the growing lawlessness and inability to implement policy strongly implied the need for soldiers. For months, Bernard refused demands to make public his official correspondence. Despite his refusal, a colonial agent in London, William Bolin, obtained copies of some of his letters to Germain and others and sent them to the Boston Sons of Liberty. Their publication in the newspaper in April 1769 led to renewed demands for his recall. The letters did not prove that Bernard had asked for troops. They did, however, call for changes in the colonial council to make it more accountable to the governor and less so to the people. The letters also, according to the radicals, portrayed in a bad light those challenging the taxes and other actions taken in London. So London finally did recall Bernard in August 1769, leaving Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson as the new acting governor. Bernard had already expressed a desire to leave the colonies. He was as sick of the fighting as everyone else. Still, while he was sitting on a ship in the harbor for several days in August while waiting for a fair wind to set out to sea, it must have been hard to listen to the chiming bells and cannon fire as the people of Boston celebrated his departure. Bernard would receive a hearing when he returned to London, at which time he cleared his name. In 1770, the Privy Council would declare all charges against him to be, quote, groundless, vexatious, and scandalous, end quote. Even so, radicals in Massachusetts tried to sue him for slander based on his letters. The cases never went anywhere. He finally resigned the governorship in 1771, receiving a baronetcy and a pension for his years of service. He would also continue to serve as an advisor to the ministry on matters concerning the colonies in the years leading up to the war. Now, one of the committee members that released Governor Bernard's letters was James Otis. Otis seemed to become increasingly paranoid and erratic about this time. The paranoia that he might be charged with treason and shipped to England was not necessarily a mark of insanity. Hutchinson, in fact, acted on orders to gather evidence that might be used against Otis and others at a future trial. Otis realized from the stolen correspondence that Bernard and others were painting him as a traitor to officials back in London. In September 1769, Otis published an article protesting that members of the Customs Board were attacking his character and conspiring against him. A few days later, Otis confronted Customs Commissioner John Robinson in a coffee house. The two men came to blows, which erupted into a full-fledged bar brawl. Unfortunately for Otis, this was a Tory coffee house, and most of the patrons sided with Robinson. Robinson used his cane to give Otis a serious head wound. Otis later sued Robinson and won an award of 2,000 pounds sterling. But after Robinson issued a public apology, Otis ceased his attempts to collect his damages. Historians dispute whether this attack brought on his mental illness or merely worsened a pre-existing deterioration of his mental faculties. In either case, after this event, even his friends noted a marked change in Otis. Earlier in life, everyone considered Otis a learned man and an effective lawyer and advocate, even if they did not always agree with him. After the blow to his head, he began to have fits of emotional outbursts and started giving long, rambling speeches that never quite got to the point. Despite these changes, Otis continued to win re-election to the Assembly, 
but Samuel Adams took more of a leadership role in the legislature in early 1770. Otis would eventually retire from the assembly in 1771 at the age of 45. He lived to see independence, but sank further into insanity. Family and friends kept him relatively isolated in a home in the countryside, away from people. He died suddenly in 1783 after stepping outside to view a thunderstorm and was struck by lightning. Next week, we take a look at issues in London dominated by the return of John Wilkes and also the colonial punishment of tar and feathers. <laughs> <laughs>